Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I think I speak for America when I put this question to you. Where are you right now? Jennifer, I continue to be in an undisclosed location. I move every week or so to make sure that you don't find me. You've been giving me too many assignments lately. So the WePod studio uh, is in a constant state of reassignment. And uh, I will be someplace new in a few more days. Well, listening to you just then reminded me that we have received some interesting correspondence of late. Listeners weighing in on what they describe as our unique interpersonal dynamic. Uh, <laughs> if if what they mean by that is Jennifer gives Jack a hard time and Jack good-naturedly goes along with it, then yes, I think that it is unique. Let's just say that not everyone is a fan and some people are really fans. Uh, yes, I, we did get one email that said that I should stop undermining your capitalist enterprise. I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Oh, speaking of which, thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. You really <laughs> help us keep the show going. I love how Jack set me up just there. Shameless. Um, if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. So Jack, we have an exciting episode. We are about to meet the runner up in our 2021 Have You Heard Graduate Student Research Contest. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for this. LeVar Edmonds, uh, is bringing us some really interesting research that he's been doing. And he is only a second-year doctoral student. So who knows? Maybe he'll have something new for us in a few more years. But this is part of an illustrious series of episodes that we have done with graduate students. So we have our winner this year, Patrick Conway. LeVar is our runner-up. Last year's winner was David Stevens. We had co-runners-up. Mimi Lyon, and Adam Kirk Edgerton. And then in our first year, Elise Castillo was our winner and Barry Goldenberg was our runner-up. All of those episodes are great, and if people haven't listened, they should head to the archive right away and make sure to download those. So we mentioned when we did our episode with Patrick Conway a few weeks ago that his research really leapt out to us. He was looking at the value of higher education in prison and how it often goes unappreciated when it's looked at solely through the lens of value to taxpayers. And I would say that LeVar Edmonds' research also really leapt out at us because it takes a topic, teacher preparation, and immediately shows us just how much is missing from the conversation about how you measure what a teacher brings to her craft. Yeah, absolutely. And not just that, but, you know, in this moment where so much of the conversation about race in education is really revolving around the curriculum, LeVar reminds us that, you know, it's also present in who our teachers are, um, who our students are, and how they relate to each other in the classroom. And I just want to assure our listeners that the fact that LeVar attends Stanford and our own Jack Schneider also attended Stanford is just a coincidence. Go Cardinal. No, 
now to LeVar Edmonds. As Jack mentioned, he's just starting his second year as a PhD student at Stanford, where he's in the Economics of Education program. And the focus of his research is historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. Specifically, he's looking at the impact that teachers who attend those institutions have on their students. Now, if you're new to the Graduate Student Research Contest, here's how it works. We issue an open invite to grad students across the land. They send in descriptions of their research, and then we ask a small group of them to submit an audio clip, making the case for why their projects are, well, pod-worthy. LaVar's entry jumped out at us for all kinds of reasons. Here's a little clip from his original audio pitch describing what his research turned up. The brief overview is I focus on fourth and fifth grade students in all of North Carolina between 2009 and 2016, and I look at their performance on standardized math exams. I find a few things of note. One, black students on average scored higher on these tests when assigned to an HBCU teacher. I also see this relationship within teacher race. Black students with black HBCU teachers scored higher than black students with black teachers from non-HBCUs. And then black students with white HBCU teachers scored higher than black students with white teachers from non-HBCUs. A lot of different results like this, but they all come back to the effectiveness of teachers from HBCUs. From there, I consider possible mechanisms where I observe another trend with suspensions. Not only did black students have a lower probability of being suspended when assigned to an HBCU teacher, but they also had a lower probability when assigned to a white HBCU teacher compared to their black peers with non-HBCU white teachers. We couldn't wait to find out more. So we asked LeVar to drop by and spend a little time walking us through his research and what prompted it. First, a little context. LeVar got interested in a wave of relatively recent research on what's known as same-race teacher-student effects. In short, researchers in economics and education have found that particularly for students who are racial and ethnic minorities, having a teacher of the same race or ethnicity can make a big difference, which left LeVar with a lot of questions about these teacher-student effects. Part of what I think that research, I think, is somewhat light on is the the mechanisms and thinking about what it is that teachers bring to the table, what it is about teachers and how they relate to students. And I think one of the ways that that can be looked at is through this idea of of teacher training and, and how teachers have these differences in in cultural backgrounds, but also have differences in professional experience and philosophies and pedagogies. And so much of that, I think, is developed by by their their teacher training. And so I, I look at HBCUs as a particular type of teacher training, especially as it matters for uh, Black students. LeVar's passion for this topic is not just professional, it's also personal. He grew up surrounded by teachers. And while HBCUs may be having a moment right now, they've been at the center of LeVar's family story for as long as he can remember. So the choice of studying them felt very natural. But what surprised him as he began to dig in is how few other researchers have really looked at HBCUs. So personally, I come from, I guess you could say, an education family. My mom, retired now, was a high school English and special education teacher. One of my older brothers is an elementary school teacher. Uh, My older sister is a high school counselor. All of them attended HBCUs. 
And, and I myself was, was briefly a high school math teacher. And so I think even though I, I am these interests in research-wise in, in economics and in labor and public economics, my research has always been particularly interested in, in education because that's just sort of what I knew and, and I, I frequently come back to. At the same time, I sort of had this interest in HBCUs and shocked by how little quantitative economics research has, has looked into these really historical and, and contemporary cornerstones of American higher education. And so it sort of came out of a, in part came out of a conversations I had with a mentor of mine, Leah Bustan, uh, who's an economist at Princeton University. It sort of morphed into this broader thing about HBCUs and, and teachers and, and how I think it fits into this, this current moment uh, looking at same race teacher effects. LeVar has written up those findings in a paper entitled Role Models Reloaded, HBCUs, Teacher Effects, and Black Student Achievement. But what particularly intrigued us about the case he's making is the why behind the impact of HBCUs. In other words, what makes these schools and the teachers they train so different? It's something that LeVar has been thinking about a lot. I think it can be a a number of things, but largely it's rooted in... I think, if I were to speculate, what HBCs are founded on and, and what it is that they're, they're striving toward. We, we talk a lot about this cultural fluency and this, this cultural competency in, in the classroom and how that matters, particularly for racial, ethnic minority students. It's probably unsurprising you're going to find these teachers who attend these institutions where that is a an explicit central part. You know, you see it in their mission statements. You you see it in their their pedagogical training in the classroom. So many of HBCUs were founded as normal schools or schools to teach teachers how to teach. And so there's that historical bent of them towards education's importance. But I think the fact that so much of HBCU teacher training, but HBCUs in general, are centered around these ideas of empowerment and and social change and sustaining and promoting some sense of of cultural heritage for their students. When you're in an environment where that is the norm, not the exception, where teachers and people training to be teachers are allowed to to have their their backgrounds flourish as a central part that can bolster their teaching rather than something they have to throw aside in the interest of some objectivity or something where they're able to center those stories and hone in on their craft and use that as part of of their philosophy as their pedagogy i think that's really important to to translating that in the classroom particularly with in this case Black students. And I, I think that's something that is unique at, at HBCUs that a lot of teachers, particularly teachers of color, in this case, particularly Black teachers, are getting there that they may not necessarily get at other institutions. A little more about the impact of those HBCU graduates on student achievement. As LeVar dug into the data, he discovered something fascinating. The positive impact of HBCU grads on Black students It's not limited to Black college grads. But I also look at specifically Black teachers, like among Black teachers, comparing students with a Black teacher who went to an HBCU versus when they didn't. And I see sort of the same result that Black teachers who attended HBCU are more effective for these students than Black teachers who didn't attend an HBCU. Interestingly enough, I observed the same thing amongst white teachers 
that white teachers who attended HBCU you know, more effective, I will say, in, in this context than white teachers who did it. And so if it were solely a story about race match or solely a piece of, you know, white teachers just kind of throw their hands up because there's there's nothing they can do to relate to their black students. Well, I, I'm not really seeing that, right? That there is a, a richer, more nuanced story here about what it is that's happening in the classroom, what it is these teachers have as, as their, their philosophies, their pedagogies, what it is that they're doing to relate to their students, I think is very important to the story and may, I think, get a little lost if we, we focus exclusively on or, or solely or largely only on this racial match between the teacher and the student. Now, if you were paying close attention at the top of the episode, you took in the key detail that LeVar is a PhD student at the very institution attended by our own Jack Schneider. That would be Stanford. And their shared institutional affiliation seemed to bring something a little extra out in Dr. Schneider, who had a lot of questions for LeVar about his research. So is it is it possible that what you're seeing here is actually a selection effect because, you know, I, th- I see it most clearly when you're talking about white teachers who are graduates of HBCUs, right? We're talking about simply not, not people who were trained differently, but we're talking about people who are different, different kind of people, um, right? These are white people who have opted into an HBCU. They are going to be operating differently in the world, regardless of training, from their white counterparts who have not made a decision like that. And so I'm wondering what you can say about the possibility that what we're seeing here really is a selection effect and it's not the result of any particular kind of training done at the HBCUs, but really the kind of filtering mechanism that they're serving as. It absolutely could be a selection component. I'm unable to observe teachers before they end up in HBCUs, particularly for, say, white teachers. There is probably a selection thing that most white teachers do not attend HBCUs. Uh, Most white college graduates don't attend HBCUs. There seems to be some something happening at these HBCUs, or rather the teachers who attended an HBCU, whether it's something in the classroom, whether it's the, the fact that they, they went to an HBCU to begin with, where it says something about the teacher themselves, there is a strong signal here from this HBCU attendance. The thing about really interesting research is that it gets you thinking about all of its implications. And that's exactly what happened to my co-host. The more he learned about LeVar's research and his findings, the more he wanted to know. And for his part, LeVar didn't seem to mind at all. But then also there are these implications like, for instance, the notion that we would want the quote-unquote best and brightest, right? We would want to select on GPAs of college grads, right? A Teach for America style approach where you would say, well, let's mm-hmm. get math, math majors from Harvard to teach in the schools, that that's what we need, that there's, there's a policy implication here that that kind of approach is misguided because it fails to recognize the many kinds of ways that teachers can have an impact on young people and that one of them is their ability to actually see and understand young people. And that could be a result of HBCU training, but it could be the result of simply who they are, which we can see because they selected into these kinds of schools, right? They opted into those kinds of environments, and therefore they are these kinds of people who have these kinds of skills, which presently aren't really measured in an effective way in the labor market. 
um, right? That's there's no there's no place for them to put that in their application. And so I see a really interesting implication here about you know what do what do our applications look like for people who want to be teachers, and particularly if they want to teach in urban schools or work with BIPOC communities. When you look at college accreditation programs or teacher education accreditation programs, so many of them are built off of, you know, are you letting in students in the upper quartile or whatever of SAT scores or, or what are the, the average certification exam scores for your graduates? And it's, you know, if we select it on that, we filter on, on these metrics that may or may not necessarily be translating into you know, higher student outputs if that's particularly what we're interested in, which I would argue is something we should be interested in we very well could be missing a wealth of effective teachers by you know, this no- using these noisy signals of teacher effectiveness. I think that's part of what I'm trying to, to get at with, with this research is not necessarily an open and shut case of, okay, so we should just hire exclusively from HBCUs from here on out, but rather the, the nuance and, and how difficult it is to, to nail down effective teaching. You know, I think the the teaching narrative, teaching work, teaching as a profession is so often oversimplified and we look for sort of a, a, a silver bullet. And I think it's, in reality, it, it's deeper than that. You know, it's, you, you need to pull at these, these strands in a variety of different ways and rather than, than rely on these really overly simplified ideas of, of what a, a good teacher is and, and how we, we get them in the first place. LeVar's work is also aimed at filling in some of the holes in the existing research about same-race teacher effects. As he delved into it, he was frustrated by the assumptions that were too often made about Black students and their teachers, and the lack of distinction that's often made between different kinds of teacher preparation. It requires, really, this idea of a sort of a deficit mindset among Black students, that there is this need for Black students in general, to have exposure to a college-educated, traditionally successful Black person in the classroom, and that they're only getting that in the classroom, as opposed to, you know, coming from a household that values education, that values trying hard in school and, and achievement, that they would only get that from a Black teacher, I think is a bit misguided and kind of runs counter to research in, in sociology, for instance, that talks about how Black students are, in many ways, those expectations are, are set by, by their families of, of what they're expected in uh, expected to do in school. On the teacher side of things, I think it tends to undervalue teacher diversity in training. Too often, teachers are viewed as sort of interchangeable agents, and I think that necessarily lends itself to to undervaluing how much of what people, what teachers do, is is about their their training as as profession. Just like with you know doctors or, or lawyers or engineers, teachers go through these programs and work to develop and craft their pedagogy. You know, Black teachers are not monolithic. You may have a certain cultural background and, and understanding, but there needs to be, I'd argue, some impetus for translating those experiences into meaningful ways that impact students positively in the classroom. 
As I mentioned earlier in the episode, HBCUs are having a moment right now. Journalist Adam Harris has a new book about them, The State Must Provide, that's getting rave reviews. Nicole Hannah-Jones recently announced that she will be joining the faculty of an HBCU. In other words, LeVar is far from alone in recognizing the value of these institutions. And yet, the reality is that many of the same schools that turn out to produce great teachers are struggling to keep the lights on and the doors open. LeVar wants us to think about what that means. Building off that context, then the natural next question is, okay, so what does it mean then for HBCUs to have declining declining enrollments? What does it mean for HBCUs to possibly shut down or, or lose accreditation status? What are we going to be missing by not having these institutions? And I think it's, among many things, probably a call to we should be investing more deeply in these institutions and, and understanding what it is that they're doing, getting into the secret sauce and understanding what it is that they're doing with these and their their training programs that are ending up with these, these teachers who, who are so effective, but also making sure that they are around in the first place to have these investigations. And I think there's an argument out there that says that these, these institutions are sort of outdated and not as, as necessary anymore with Black students attending or having the opportunities for so many other institutions. And, and don't get me wrong, that's fantastic that they are not you know explicitly barred from non-HBCUs, that's great, but that doesn't mean that these institutions have gone by their their expiration date. There's still much to learn. There's still a central role for them to play, particularly in education. And I think we owe it to them and to our students to see to it that they continue to thrive in this capacity and even, dare I say it, grow to whatever extent we can help with that. Congratulations to LeVar Edmonds for being the runner-up in our 2021 Have You Heard Graduate Research Contest. We look forward to hearing much more from LeVar in the future. If you happen to be a grad student with dreams of being featured on this podcast, it's never too soon to start planning. We'll be making an announcement later this fall. And Jack and I will be right back. He's got a little history lesson for us, and I'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. What does the conservative revolt against, quote, woke capital have to do with education reform? Intriguing. Just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a subscriber. Listening to LeVar there reminds me of a conversation that I got to sit in on between Gloria Ladson Billings and James Anderson. And nice name dropping there, Jack. I was wondering why you were leaning into your microphone, and I figured that it wasn't to say something pleasant. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, and Gloria and Jim were participating in a policy dialogue for the journal that I co edit, History of Education Quarterly. And we were asking them to reflect on black teachers, past, present, and future, and specifically to think about the importance of black teachers, to talk about the importance of black teachers. And one of the things that came up that, you know, it wasn't the first time that I had heard it, but it, it was just so striking, was their conversation about what black teachers meant in black communities prior to the Brown decision, right? Brown versus Board of Education is so often presented as a triumph of the civil rights movement, right? A, a major milestone for equity in public education. And as 
they and other scholars have reminded us over the past few decades. Uh, you know, Brown in many ways was a triumph, but black educators lost their jobs uh, at pretty wholesale rates as a result of desegregation. And as a result of that, you know, in many ways we have forgotten the stories of what black teachers meant in black schools uh, prior to Brown, right, for, you know, the hundred years of public education for African Americans prior to that decision where they served so many different roles in their communities, not just as teachers, but as role models and as members of the middle class, right, who helped sustain the local economy. Um, they meant far more than I think we fully understand if we're only thinking about teachers from a sort of narrow 21st century professional perspective. So, Jack, on the surface, our winning entry and the runner-up entry for our 2021 Graduate Student Research Contest might seem like they don't really have a lot in common. That on the one hand, we had our winning entry, which was about the value of higher education for, for prisoners. And then we had this amazing research that we've just heard about from LeVar Edmonds and the impact of teachers who were trained at HB. CUs, and you'd think, well, those don't really share anything, but they do. Do you know what it is? <laughs> I have a feeling that this is a trick, as usual, but, you know, for me, I think there are some obvious commonalities, right? One of them is that we're talking about education as something more than an instrumental process, right? That it's not simply for getting a job, it's not simply about getting ahead, but it's about, you know, fulfilling human potential there. And in both of these studies, what we see is a framing of education as a process that is so much broader than the kind of human capital development perspective we often hear about from neoliberals and their conservative allies. So that there's there's one theme that I see, but uh, but what's the trick here, Jennifer? Well, actually, for once, there really isn't a trick. Um, uh, I had something I had something slightly narrower in mind, but you did kind of get it. I was thinking that in their own way, both of these represent one of our favorite topics, which is, wait for it, the failure of economists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should have I should have uh, seen that one coming. Yes, I like that. Let's go with your answer instead of mine. So um, if you go back to our winning entry, Patrick Conway, and I really hope that people will, one of the arguments that he was making was that this taxpayer case in favor of providing uh, prisoners with higher education was way too narrow to capture all the things that that college behind bars really does for these for these individuals and and in some ways Lavar's case is very similar he's like hey wait economist you're missing a lot here one of the ironies of course is that Lavar is uh, an economist, right? An economist of education who is using those methods. And so, you know, one of the questions that I put to him in our conversation is, you know, what's being missed even in your work here? Because, you know, you, you can't really talk about things that you can't measure. And as it turns out, 
There's just so much that we aren't measuring in a kind of systematic way, at least not with formal measures in education. And I, I think that speaks to the importance of relying in many cases on ordinary measures, right? Our ability to use our perception and uh, to use human judgment as a way of figuring out the degree to which education matters, right? Because uh, we do have that capability. We can figure it out ourselves. Well, Jack, this experience just reminded me how much I love the Graduate Student Research Contest, and I can't wait to do it again. The one thing that I really worry about is that every year, the quality of these submissions just get gets higher, and I wonder what it would be like to be a grad student and hear LeVar and Patrick talking about the, you know, like the kinds of research questions they're asking. I bet it would be kind of humbling. In fact, I bet as you listen to their research, you thought, you know, good thing I got my degree a while ago. I don't know if I'd measure up now. Yeah, back in 2010, our standards were a little lower. So I, th I think I would have made the cut a decade ago. But no, uh, listeners should not be intimidated because the truth is, I think every single submission that we have ever gotten has been pretty great. Um, you know, that there's no one way to win the graduate student research contest. And you and I have ended up, well, I won't speak for you, but I've ended up learning a lot uh, from going through all of those submissions. Uh, so really looking forward to doing it again this year. So last time we mentioned that we had exciting news on the book front, that there is finally an audiobook version of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door out that you can listen to, and that Jack and I happen to have some free copies. Do you call it a copy when it's audio? Uh, it's not tape. I was going to suggest <laughs> that we have some free tape to give away, but wow, that's really... Way to take a rocket ship back to the 80s, Jack. I don't, you, I'll just stop. You go ahead. Well, anyway, so if you are interested in availing yourself of a free copy of the audiobook, just go to our book website. That's a wolf at the schoolhouse door.com and look for the tab that says audiobook. And there's a little link there, and you can email us. And if you are among the first eight, we will send you back the secret code. And you can start listening right away. Yeah, that's and the reason that there are only eight is that I selfishly took two. I gave one to my wife and one to my mom. And Jennifer, I, I take it that Russ is actually going to read the book because Katie told me there was no way she was going to read it. But if she could listen to it while walking, that there was a chance that she would get through it. Well, while you've been spending time in the WePod studio, I have been racking my brain for interesting topics for us to discuss in the weeds. And that is the special subscriber-only area that we offer to our Patreon supporters. Thanks to all of you, by the way. Your support is what helps us keep the show going. And so today, Jack, we are going to discuss something that you are going to be very interested in. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but conservatives have suddenly turned against big business. And I happen to be very interested in what this means for an education reform movement that for decades has been intent on making schools as business-like as possible. 
If that weeds topic sounds interesting to you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and sign up to become a supporter. A reminder that if you sign up at the $10 a month rate, that means you get a free copy of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door signed by one of the authors who also writes in the name of the other author. Ah, I didn't know you did that. You know, Jennifer, I I am able to sign my own name. I know that the decline of cursive has uh, troubled many, but uh, you have to remember that I was schooled in a bygone era where we learned such things. So, Palmer method. <laughs> All joking aside, uh, we want to just take a moment here to recognize. Uh, Mike Rose, who passed away recently. Mike was a good friend to us, a friend to the show, and uh, somebody who you could always count on. He was a mentor to me, and uh, you know, I think to anybody who ever encountered him. If our listeners haven't read Mike's work, they should check out uh, the, the many books that he published during his lifetime, as well as some of the incredible stuff that you can find by Mike online. He wrote a blog. He was pretty prolific. Um, He's written articles in all sorts of places. A recent favorite of mine that I tweeted out was from American Scholar. It was just the sort of thing that I would write. You would think it was me, except it was funnier and more eloquent. Um, So uh, as we end here, I just want to recognize our friend. We'll miss you, Mike. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>